is from chapters 8 and 9 of the book of the Revelation to John. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. 
but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will free from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two more woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit harder to get a praise be to Christ after that text. <laughs> if you're wondering if you want to be a pastor, look at a text like that and think, do I want to help us all understand that? Um, and I went back and forth all week, but, you know, planned it this way. And, and to be very honest, as I've said in a couple of the other sermons about the Revelation, this is actually designed to encourage followers of Christ. So I have my work cut out for me. I'm glad you're here. As I was studying this week and over the last year for this series, I find myself rereading um, the books that have been kind of my conversation partner, and the reason is not because I don't understand the Revelation 
when I read it from front to back, uh, about 10 months ago to begin preparing for this series, I was like, I think I get it. But I go back to the books because I want to control the information in my head and to be able to control it with you. By the way, I think everybody's controlling. We just all have different ways of doing it. And as I read and study and get a little anxious about the text, and I do that all the time because I long for it to be clear and speak the words of life that it actually is to your heart and to mine. As I was studying it, the reason I was going back to the books is I desire to control it. I want to control the language. I want to control the stories. And this is not a book that will be controlled. The Revelation is a vision that Jesus gave to John and told him to circulate it to seven letters, which is uh, both a literal thing and explains that it is also for us. And it is not a book that will be controlled. It is a book that is to wash over us and encourage us not only by God's love in ransoming a people for God, but also about, by his justice. We are to receive the vision that, that John put to paper and let it grip us more so than to totally understand it or even remotely control it. I think I, in some ways I would prefer that God be not transcendent, not outside of time, not fully knowledgeable and fully powerful, but then we have kind of a Greek myth or a superhero from the MCU instead of a God who actually understands all things, exists outside of time, and is all-powerful, and his justice is perfect. In the Revelation, the worship is beautiful, even as it's challenging to picture these beasts with all the eyes and the 24 elders and the mighty angel. What's a, are there non-mighty angels? And one of the things that's beautiful about the worship is the silence. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, that I know Andrew covered last week, but I thought it was worth saying a few more words, not because of anything you did or didn't say, but when people reflect on that, it's a way of us seeing the beauty of our prayers rising to God. God doesn't need 30 minutes. It doesn't take them 30 minutes to get to the throne. That's for us to help. That's to encourage us that that's the 24 elders and the four beasts and God and the lamb and the angels letting the prayers rise before the prayers then have their effect on the world the silence itself is beautiful. Even as the, the warnings, which is the best one-sentence definition of a plague throughout Scripture that I can give you, even as the warnings are harsh and clear and jolting, the worship is beautiful. And the Scriptures are very clear that there is one gospel, and that's the good news, is Jesus. Scriptures are very clear that there is but one Savior, and yet there are many practices we adopt to enjoy that one gospel and the freedom and the, that we receive in Christ. Silence is actually one of them. I know you want to hear about all the plagues. I'll, I'll get there. But in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, there's a description of the beauty of silence in heaven. And I think that while we would love to see these locusts for ourselves, perhaps the most profound part of the revelation were we to sit with John would be that 30 minutes. Have you ever been silent for 30 minutes? 
I sometimes practice times of silence and I usually go for 20 because I'm nervous that I won't be able to make it to 30. 30 minutes of silence as the praises of the saints throughout space and time rose to the throne room. I practiced some uh, centering prayer yesterday and centering doesn't make it Eastern. Centering is I want to stick to one theme for a few minutes and be quiet before God with that. And it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. I want to encourage you that this is one of the many practices that followers of Jesus can adopt to enjoy the joy purchased for us in Christ. So I'm actually going to give you a second. If you're like me, you might have forgotten to take a deep breath. This is going to be your moment to take a deep breath. Some of you have some things to grieve, to release, to give to God. Some of you have specific concerns that were hopefully covered by our prayers. But I want to give you a moment to do that. of you wondering if I was going to give you 30 minutes. I'm not quite that brave and or arrogant yet. The reason I wanted to give you that time is because I needed it, but also because what the vision helps us see is the mercy and love of God as he and those in the throne room wait as your prayers rise. But after the silence, there are these trumpet blasts, and they are harsh and jolting, aren't they? Everything is touched by the collision of sin and God's holiness. Everything physically is affected by the fact that Jesus came to earth, taught, performed miracles, died unjustly and rose from the dead, and much of the world rejected him. The first four trumpet blasts show us that fresh water, salt water, and sky are all literally affected by the collision of man's sin and the brokenness of the entire world and God's holiness. I do not think this is the final judgment. I think that all six of the trumpets have been blown and are being blown in the in-between time between Jesus' appearance and the seventh trumpet. Did you notice that? It happened before. It's told that there will be seven, but only six of them happen. This is is how John saw it, and he utilizes it as a literary device so that we know these are the things that happen in the in-between time. The in-between time is really important throughout the New Testament and especially in the book of Revelation. And if you want a key to this, like a a cheat sheet, go to Jesus' words in Matthew 24 or in Mark 13, and you'll see Jesus easily moving between things that were about to happen to the disciples, meaning in the next 30 or 40 years, and things that are going to happen in the in-between time, and then his return. The revelation does the same with more words and over more time. And what's most important for those of you that think that these are things that are going to happen right before Jesus returns, we all agree that they happen for the same reason. So you can disagree with me on that, and we can still believe that these things happen for the same why. 
but I think these are already happening. John's visions, and John himself in writing these down, has no interest in pulling any punches, right? And the reason is Christians are realists. We're hopeful realists. We actually understand evil in a more profound way than someone without belief in God does. And we're still hopeful about it. John received that in his vision and he presents it to us. And it's not only that the collision of sin and and God's holiness, it's also, especially in um, trumpet blasts five and six, God is allowing evil to, in some measure, destroy itself. You notice that, that it has power to destroy good and evil? And one of the things that's challenging about the Revelation are the things that we can kind of picture, right? Go ahead and put up verses 7 through 10 from chapter 8. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. Ever since the atomic age, people have been confident that that's what that's a picture of. And yet, for a first century Turkish Christian, what are they picturing? Vesuvius that had blown up 16 years before. In every age, certain parts of the Revelation seem incredibly obvious to the listeners. And the reason I think our imaginations go there is because so much of the Revelation is so challenging to our imagination. How are there these four beasts? One that has the face of a man, but, and they have eyes everywhere? What in the world does that look like? What does it mean to be a mighty angel and a non-mighty angel? And then we get to the plagues, and some of these look just like things we've seen. And I think the more obvious answer than that this is an atomic age prophecy is that these are things that happen throughout history and they'll continue to happen until the seventh trumpet is blown. Things we can imagine naturally draw us away from things that are not as easy to imagine naturally. And if you're thinking, if that's true, then God has given evil a long leash. I would agree with you. And yet the reason that he has given evil a long leash is, that, is so that women and men have every chance to repent of believing they can save themselves and to turn to him and say, Jesus, your Lord, save me. There's silence in heaven and then trumpet blasts of warning. If you're a student of scripture, you might have been listening to Revelation 8 and 9 and thinking, these remind me of the Exodus, and you'd be right. I have never come across anything written about Revelation 8 or 9 that does not point out that these, the visions John received of the trumpet blasts that might be happening at the very same time as the seals breaking in chapter 6 and might be running parallel to it and might be a different time, it's not really clear by the way John presents it, are incredibly similar to the warnings God gave to Pharaoh when he was uh, a slave master over the nation of Israel. And if you don't like the plagues, notice that God gives freedom to his people and every warning, that Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Storybook Bible's term for the plagues of Egypt, every warning was an opportunity not only for Pharaoh to let God's people go, but even to turn to God and learn to worship something that actually had life and power as opposed to the idols he worshiped. 
in the same way these trumpet blasts are warnings. And if you don't like that, you can know, perhaps encouragingly, that I don't either. But God's justice will not be thwarted. And so as he mercifully waits for people to trust him, the world is still under the curse. And it collides with his holiness. And these are the effects. The uh, trumpet blasts are similar in style and yet much larger in scope than the warnings given to the Egyptians. The reason is the dominant motif, the dominant idea of the New Testament is that Jesus is the new Israel, John 15. Those that follow him are engrafted into the new Israel. The work that he did is the new exodus and we're awaiting a new and even better promised land, Revelation 21 and 22. That's why John interprets the visions in light of the exodus. And humans don't like warnings, do we? I was once caught white-handed in how much I don't like warnings. My wife and I bought a house in St. Louis uh, during the Great Recession, and when we were updating it, we ran out of money, like a lot of people do when they're updating houses. So the second floor, which either needed new floors or carpet, instead we decided to paint, you know, that like strong floor paint that you can put on it. And when you paint with floor paint, you can't touch it for two days. And I knew that because there's a warning label on the paint. And I knew that because my wife, who painted it because she's a champion, said, you can't touch this paint for two days. After one day, you can walk on it in socks, but you can't touch it. So one day after she painted it, I needed to get something, and I go up there, and I'm standing on the landing, and I can see the floor, and I'm like, that looks dry. I know. I'm in the future, too. And I put my hand in it. And for four years, that handprint that we saw at the top of our stairs was an anecdote about how little Matt likes or listens to warnings. And I'm really glad that we don't live in that house anymore and the anecdote has ceased in frequency. (laughs) I believe that these six warnings to all men and women are happening now and will continue to happen until the seventh trumpet is blown and Jesus returns to earth and renews it. In the meantime, we catch from chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, that this is one of the many ways that God encourages women and men to repent, to turn from believing they can save themselves to him. And part of the reason that that is supposed to be encouraging is it means that God has not yet drawn all the people to himself. The vast multitude in chapter 7 is not 144,000 people in the sense that it's only that number. It's 144,000 in that that's God's completed number. But when we look, it's a vast multitude. John's very comfortable with us learning from both what he saw and what he heard. And chapters 8 and 9 tell us that that number is not complete yet. The warning is that all repent. This is actually supposed to be encouraging, both to the first century Turkish Christians hearing it and to you and to me. As a letter, remember, Revelation is three different kinds of letter at the same time. It's both a regular letter circulated to churches. It's also a prophecy, speaking truth, and an apocalypse, an uncovering, an unveiling of something that was previously covered. Did you catch all that? Now you're just familiar with biblical genre. Good, right? We're good. Okay. 
Here's how it's supposed to encourage you as a letter. These things will not ultimately harm you. Because if you're a follower of Christ, you have been saved from the second death, which is eternity. So even if you're in the midst of these trumpet blasts, you're sealed for God. Revelation 7. This is how it's going to encourage you prophetically from a truth-speaking standpoint, and you're going to have to wait on it because the book loves suspense. From a prophetic standpoint, Revelation 8 and 9 encourage you that people don't repent in light of these horrific trumpet blasts. But there is something that will lead them to Christ in the world. But it is not this. I realize that's sort of indirect, non-encouraging encouragement. But it will encourage you, specifically beginning in chapter 11. Hang in there. We'll get there. As an apocalypse, it encourages those of us that are in Christ with something that's going to sound negative, but is in fact profound and important for us to notice. There is a cost to rejecting Jesus Christ. It is not simply a religion we practice that we might have peace throughout the week. There is actually an eternal cost to rejecting Christ. And those of you that are in Christ, that encourages our hearts that he has pursued us and drawn us to himself. Revelation reminds us that we are hopeful realists. We call what is evil, evil, and what is good, good. And we do neither of those things without hope. Revelation is not a sentimental book. It gives a clear, though challenging, picture of God's justice and its full return. And the way it is, it is apocalyptic is not as much only talking about the future, but saying, in light of the future, what do we do today? That's actually the definition of Jewish apocalypse. It's not the only thing about the book, but in light of the future, what are we to do today? One of the things, one of the reasons I was so excited to preach this text and one of the things I want us to understand deeply and be gripped by is what do we actually do knowing that Jesus is going to return? We don't wait to act like followers of Christ. The text that has been, in my opinion, opinion misused to sell a lot of books about how one person's in a field and then one will disappear. That text, the purpose of it is to encourage us to not wait to act like followers of Christ. If you read Jesus in the sections where he talks about these things, the reason is don't wait to be generous. Don't wait to use your words for love. Don't wait to be an agent of peace in the vocation and neighborhood and family you find yourself in. Don't wait to ask for forgiveness. And most especially, don't wait to repent. In chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, it says, These things happen, and yet people did not repent. What is repentance? It's one of those words that I think sounds odd to those who are not God and Jesus people, and yet for us, to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, the theological backbone of our denomination, chapter 15 is devoted to repentance unto life. Therein is where we live lives of life by learning to repent. Repentance is a state, a constant state of thankfulness and honesty before God and neighbor that we miss opportunities for love and good and justice 
And so what do we do when we miss those? We go to the people as best we can and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Then we change. Christians never get to say, that's just the way I am. And that, if that sounds harsh to you, just tweak it a little bit. This is the way I've always been, so this is going to be challenging. This is the way I've always been, and so you might need to give me some time. But I do long to love you better. You see, a relevant chapter 8 and 9 are in the implication that while most of the world does not know repentance, we do. We know what to do about our mistakes and the times that we've harmed people accidentally or on purpose. We know how to give space because making amends is usually not a quick process, is it? We know how to forgive, which means long for their good, but then wait until they're ready for the relationship to be restored and vice versa. We can neither control revelation nor can we fully control ourselves or others. Oh, come on. Can I get an amen? I can't even control my cats. It's because they're cats. <sighs> Sorry. Had a couple of cat incidents last week. I'm still processing them, obviously. In the same way that I can't control the revelation, and I can't even fully control my own words or actions, and I definitely can't control those around me, we can repent and therein enjoy the righteousness, joy, and peace which is the kingdom that Jesus purchased for you and for me. Galatians 2.20 summarizes both the gospel and what it means to live a life in keeping with repentance. Chapter 2, verse 20. The gospel is not something that we do It is God's pursuit of us that takes away our old self and gives us our most true self in Christ. Paul describes it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as our intellects and imagination wrestle with the visions you gave to John, would you come alongside us and assure our hearts of your love? Father, Son, and Spirit, teach us perhaps for the first time that your pursuing love is hope and peace and life. Father, Son, and Spirit, for the many in here who trust you, comfort and assure them in your love, even as we are strengthened in receiving the sacrament you ordained. Comfort us even now before we approach your table. Amen.